If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. We're continuing our Psalm series, Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And what we're being challenged by uh, is this tension of being real people with real emotions that also are simultaneously submitting ourselves to God's Word, to God's truth. And the Scripture calls on us to be both. Uh, We don't want to run to one corner or the other. We don't want to just be authenticity people uh, that kind of spew what we're feeling but never submit ourselves to God's truth. We also don't want to be truth people uh, that live in an artificial way, that don't acknowledge the reality of our day-to-day emotions and feelings. And the Psalms models beautifully for us what that looks like to live that out. Um, In Psalm 116, uh, we're focusing on the character of God as a God who saves. And so we're calling the sermon this morning, The God Who Saves. And because it's Father's Day, I want to do what we kind of did in a parallel way on Mother's Day. We recognize that Uh, The beauty of what mothering is and the beauty of what fathering is really comes from the character of God. We don't have to have a um, commanding mothers to do this or a commanding fathers to do this kind of passage to understand what mothering and fathering should look like because we're told repeatedly that the model for those things are found in the character of God himself. And so this morning we're going to look at a text that talks about the God who saves and it is going to remind us of what a father should be like and More broadly, even if you're not a father, just what it looks like to love others well. And so we all have something to learn this morning. I want to remind you that Ephesians uh, chapter 4 tells us that all families get their name from the ultimate father, God himself. So if Father's Day is a hard day for you because of a difficult father or a missing father, uh, I want to encourage you uh, that this is really about you and your spiritual father, the God of the universe, the God who says he is the perfect father. And so I really want to zero in on that. We're going to make application to dads and and practical ways. But really, we're going to try to zero in on who is God? What does it mean that he's our father? And if that's painful to think about for you, recognize that the reason it's painful is because your earthly father failed to live up to the reality, the beauty of what your heavenly father is. And so I want to encourage you to rejoice in who your heavenly father really is, genuinely is. And so we'll read from Psalm 116. Um, Starting in verse 1, it says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I'm going to stop there. We'll look at more of the verses as we move on this morning, but let me pray and ask God to teach us. God, we ask that you would teach us. Uh, We ask that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. I pray for open ears and open minds and hearts this morning. Help us to learn from you as you've revealed yourself as our perfect heavenly father god we thank you that we can come to you in that kind of relationship that we can talk to you that we can learn from you and we pray that you would continue to remake us in the image of your son we pray in jesus name amen well as we talk about the character of god as the god who saves and think about what that looks like in our relationship to other people i was reminded of a a famous play and wanted to read some lines from that play. 
He says, Jean Valjean, don't forget, don't ever forget, you've promised to become a new man. Promise? What? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. In the movie, book, play, there's a lot of versions of this, Les Miserables. It's a famous story about a man who was saved by the kindness of another and then went on to learn to save others. And that's really what fatherhood is about. It's about a heavenly father that saves us and then calls us to act as he does in the world, being a protector, a savior, a hero for others. This psalm is about the rescuing, saving, delivering power of God. And this kind of thing is illustrated in all kinds of stories, all kinds of hero stories. In the story of Les Miserables, we see Jean Valjean saved by this priest who gives his money as an act, as a gesture to demonstrate the gospel to Jean Valjean. Then Jean Valjean gets his life together and then is able to play that out in other people's lives. There's this uh, woman who's dying, uh, who's just spent her life in sin, but also uh, the sin she's done, but also the sin others have done to her. She's dying, and in her dying breaths, he promises to care for her daughter. And so Jean Valjean, out of the power of being shown grace and forgiveness by someone else, is able to show grace and forgiveness to this dying woman and is able to show grace and love to this orphan child. In his dying breath, he says to Cosette, the daughter that he's adopted, he says, on this page I write my last confession. Read it well when I'm at last sleeping. It's the story of one who turned from hating, a man who only learned to love when you were in his keeping. And so the story is a story of a man who hated but was shown love and then learned to love and stop hating. And that's really what God calls on us to do. God has shown us love, although we deserve his wrath. The gospel story is we deserve judgment. And God took that judgment upon himself and Jesus Christ on the cross that Jesus died for us and took the wrath of God and gives us his righteousness. And so we can know God as a loving father, not a wrathful father, as a loving father. And so we're called on to live differently because of that. And we see that really strongly in the text this morning. In Psalm 116, the first thing that we see is this saving, this God interfering in the lives of his people leads to affection. It leads to affection. It leads to a response of love. That's the first line of the text is, is love. He says in verse 1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. There's a lot of different words for love in Greek and in Hebrew, and you all probably heard a lot of sermons that talk about these things. This is just a really simple word for affection. This is a simple word. It's, it's like I love ice cream. It's like I love my wife. It's like I love certain stories. It's just this affection. It's a heart that longs for something. And so the author here of the psalm is saying, I love the Lord. I have affection for him. He is, he's precious to me. He's good to me. He saved me. He listened to me when I cried out for help. He's heard my voice, my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. So he's saying, not only do I love him and I have affection towards him, but I'm going to keep calling out to him as long as I live. I hope you see a pattern there of, of lifelong commitment. It's not just a one time, oh, I love him and I forgot about him tomorrow, but it's, I'm going to keep calling out to him. Do you have a life that continues to call out to God as one who actually loves you and so in return you love him? 
That's what we see here in the psalmist. It says in verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol, and this is that weird Hebrew word for the place of the dead. It's like Hades. It's like the underworld. It's, it's a little more murky. It's not really as clear as like we think of heaven and hell, but it's just, it's just death and the grave and the brokenness of all of that. And he says, it's like aggressively laying hold of me, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Derek Kidner says that this language is, is really aggressive, that it's it's like death is pursuing us. Do you, do you recognize that we live in a world where death is, is chasing after us and pursuing us? That we need salvation from the death that is, that's just all around us. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. Death is pursuing us. It's hunting us. Do you recognize that reality, that brokenness? And do you recognize the, the salvation, the rescue that God offers us? It's a question that the, the text is begging us to ask. He says in verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. So the psalmist says, I, I recognize that death is hunting me down, and I called to God to save me. Now we imagine that there was some specific situation he was saved out of, but we've talked about this throughout the Psalms. The Psalms can both talk about the, the universal condition of all mankind being under the brokenness of sin and death and needing rescue from that, but also the specifics of sometimes we're in very real situations, right? If you've like me, uh, I've, I've escaped those near-death experiences, and that marks you. That kind of wakes you up to the universal reality. So that, that may be what's happening here. That may, there may have been a real situation where he was about to die, he called on God, and God saved him. But we want to understand that there are those specific situations, right? Where a bullet just misses your head or a car almost runs you off the road. But there's the universal condition that all human beings live under if we live in a world of of death and brokenness. And death is pursuing us. Death and brokenness is pursuing us. And so we have to call on God. He's the answer to the brokenness in the world. He's the rescue, not the other things we chase after. And when we recognize that saving relationship, then we're going to have affection for him. We're going to love him. We're going to want to embrace him. The way a, 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 a little boy wants to embrace his dad when he comes home from work. We were just talking to friends at a wedding yesterday about how their child goes nuts when daddy comes home. That, that embrace, that love, that just running, to just jump on him. That, that's the kind of affectionate relationship that we can have with a God of the universe. I have a picture here of a, of a dad hugging his children. Looks like, you know, maybe greeting after deployment. We don't really know the setting of the picture, but it's this idea of, of the embrace. It's this idea of the affection, of, of love. So my question for you is, do you have this kind of relationship with a God of the universe, or do you see him as distant, as um, angry, wrathful, or do you see him as a loving father that, that embraces you, and in return you have that kind of affection for him? Do you have affection for God? Because what I want you to understand is you will never obey God well until you love God. And so often religion says, just do what's right, forget your feelings, don't care about how you think God really hates you, just obey him and everything's going to work out. But what I want you to understand is the scripture teaches that understanding the love that God offers us in Jesus, that's what makes our heart want to obey. Otherwise, he's not trustworthy right? Otherwise, he's just out to spoil our fun. But when you recognize that the God of the universe suffered for you, died for you, then that's going to change your perspective. Calvin called this the third use of the law. 
And the idea is that you can actually then approach the law as a son, as a daughter, that recognizes you have a daddy that loves you. So then the law is, you know, do this, do that, don't sin in this way, don't sin in that way. And now you have a changed relationship where you can actually think, he loves me. And maybe my first instinct is that doesn't sound fun, but he loves me, so I'm going to trust him. And so that, that's my, my dream and my prayer for the people of this community and this church is that we would get to that point where we have a relationship with God where we trust that he loves us and that makes us want to do what he says. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not like pretending you're better than other people and you just do right things and that proves you're better than other people. Christianity is having a heart that's just been blown up and melted and changed by the affection, the love of a God who would save you, who would give himself for you. And when you recognize that, then your heart returns that affection to him. Then you have affection for God. You don't see him as an ogre anymore, but you see him as someone who loves you, so you begin changing. You begin trying to live according to what he says because you recognize his desire and his love and his kindness for you. There's a lot of great theology books that explain that process, but one book that was really helpful for me was a book called The Cure. Um, There's this book called The Cure by John Lynch, and in the book he talks about just imagining instead of uh, me here and Jesus over there and my sin separating us, recognizing that by faith through the cross Jesus is one with me and so now his arm is around me saying let's work on this together and and that helped me to understand this change of direction this change of affection no longer do I see God as distant and he he's angry at me and he's disappointed in me and he's ashamed of me but now I see he's a he's a father that loves me and his arm is around me and that doesn't mean I do everything perfectly but we're going to work on it together We're going to work on it together. And that's my prayer for you, that you would begin to work on living by this truth with God's arms around you. This this applies to how we parent too. Dads, moms, teachers, commanders, anyone that's in authority over someone else, you need to give clear directions, right? You need to train people to just do the right thing. I'm not saying that you don't do that. You, You just train people to do the right thing. They can feel like it later. But you also want people to feel like it. You also want people to have that affection. You want people to recognize that you care for them, that you're leading them because you love them. You're not just trying to get them to do what you want so that they're no longer an inconvenience to you, but you genuinely love them. That's what servant leadership is, beginning to build that affection. Right? So in the practicalities of parenting, yeah, you've got to train your kids to do the right thing. You've got to set real consequences. You've got to punish them until they learn to do the right thing, but you want their heart to change too. You don't just want to change their external uh, patterns of behavior, their external obedience. Same thing if you're a teacher. Same thing if you're a commander. Same thing if you're a boss. Yeah, you set real boundaries, real consequences. You train people to do the right thing, but you're also waging a war to win their heart, their affection, recognizing that you actually love them. You're proving over and over again that you're willing to serve them and suffer for them for their good. That's the way the God of the universe has communicated that to us. The next thing we see in the text is that saving is for the simple. It's for the simple, and that, that's our posture. Our posture is those that are simple. We have something to learn from God, and we see this in verses 6 through 11. If you look at the text, it says, The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I love that verse. 
You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So that last verse is, is that's um, dramatic, right? All mankind are liars. I'm greatly afflicted. You kind of see this panic moment. And so there's this reality of like, I can't trust anybody. I don't know what to do. I'm getting all these competing voices. Different people are telling me different things. Um, and it drives us to come back to a, a posture of simplicity before God. God, just, just show me what to do. Just teach me, God. It, it drives us to that place of simplicity. There, there should be this real angst, this real like, I don't know what to do, God. There should be this sense of, of brokenness, of simplicity, we should get to that place of feeling stupid. I don't have the answers, God. Teach me. Guide me. And that will allow us to come under the, the fountain of his grace and to learn from him, to learn from his word. And so that's my, my hope for you. And as we've been going through the psalm series, my, my prayer is that we would learn to be, just as we've talked about over and over again, this, this people that are emotionally honest, that are real. They're not fake Christians that say, I've got it all together because I've got the truth and I just do what the truth says, but we'd be real about, no, I'm sometimes absolutely broken and I don't know what to do and I feel like everyone around me are, are liars. I'm greatly afflicted. I'm in pain. And that that reality and that painful risk of being honest about that reality would drive us to be in submission to God's truth, to, to be simple before him. Say, God, teach me, guide me. This is a picture I've got of some kindergarten kids. I thought this would be a good example of just what our posture is supposed to be before God. I'm a teacher, so I probably struggle with this more than you guys. I struggle with thinking I know stuff, right? That's a temptation for me to, to actually think I'm smart sometimes. Um, so y'all pray for me that God would break me of that. But, but our posture before God should be one of humility, of simplicity, God, I don't know the answers. T tell me the answers, God. Show me the answers. Help me to learn from you. Help me to sit at your feet. We should think of ourselves as, as a five-year-old, crisscross applesauce sitting on the floor, listening to what God has to say. That's the posture that we should have before him. We, we talk a lot of, about practical ways you could do this, right? Like joining a Bible study group. We have groups where you study the Bible. We have these worship services where we gather and we teach the Bible. You could take notes. Uh, you could read back over the scriptures that we study in these groups or in these services. You could meet with a friend and say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to live what the scripture says. Here's some areas I'm struggling with. Will you pray for me? And we'll kind of talk to each other about what that looks like to live our lives in obedience to the Bible. Pray for each other, encourage each other. I think, again, this has application to how we lead our kids. If you're a dad, if you're a mom, or if, again, if you have any area of authority or leadership, Deuteronomy 6 makes it real clear with parents and children that we're to teach our kids all the time. That we're just to be constantly teaching. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, when you lay down, when you rise up, all the time, be teaching, be teaching, be teaching. And we're teaching as learners, right? We're not teaching as, I've got all the answers, listen to me. We're teaching as, I'm a learner too, and what God has taught me now, I'm teaching you. I'm passing this on. I had to learn this. God taught me this. Someone else taught me this. Now I'm teaching you this. And we pass that on to our kids. Um, if you don't really know where to start with that, if you're a dad, I know sometimes dads struggle with this. I've talked about this before. As dads, it's easy um, to see your wives as the experts with our children. If they're the ones 
being the primary caregiver, your wives are the experts. And so start by asking them, say, help me to do this, right? Because your wife is smarter than you generally anyway. So start by asking her, okay? Say, how, how could I do a better job of this? What are some things we could do practically? Like help me to navigate through this, read, read the Bible to your kids, read some Bible story books to your kids, as well as teaching them what you know from work, what you know from life, how to tie shoes, right? How to swim. Teach them the Bible as well. Read the scriptures to them. Get a good Bible story book like the Big Picture Story Bible or the Jesus Story Book Bible or just the Bible, right? You could read that to them too. Um, I encourage you to, to be consistent. My encouragement, dads, is again and again as I've tried to teach my kids the Bible. I'm a teacher. I was a children's pastor. I was a youth pastor, right? So I should be really good at this, um, but it's often very not awesome, okay? It's often just very wow, that didn't go right. That didn't go good at all. And I just want to encourage you dads, if you feel that way, like, man, I can't even read very well and I feel stupid reading the Bible to my kids. Just I do too, okay? And I'm a professional. So I just want to encourage you that, it, that it's okay. Consistency is far more important than awesomeness. Okay, so ch- check your ego at the door and just be humble and serve and read and just struggle and be consistent with your kids and with those that God has put under your authority. The last thing that we see as we move through the text is that saving should be publicized. We haven't read this section yet, so let's look at verses 12 through 19, this final section, verses 12 through 19. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. This is a reference to the Passover meal. We then reflect that in communion. Right? Jesus, during the Passover meal, said, hey, I'm that lamb, I'm that covenant, I'm that sacrifice. And so as we have communion, it's a remade version of Passover. Passover was when uh, the Israelites were taken as slaves out of Israel, and they were given this meal to remember God's salvation. And there was a sacrificial lamb that was slain to be their sacrifice, to be their protection. Well, now we understand that to be lived out through Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. He's the one that was slain for us. He says, I'm the bread. I am the cup. And so here we have this idea. Again, verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for his benefits to me? I hope you understand this rhetorical question. Uh, We don't have anything to render to the Lord that would earn his love. We return back to him our life because he loves us. So in verse 13, I lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call on the name of the Lord. I'll call on him. I'll receive the salvation he gives in the Passover, in the cross. I'll receive the saving that he gives to me. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. A vow in the Old Testament was a formal way of worshiping where you made a promise. You said, I'm going to pour out this wine. I'm going to make this sacrifice. I'm going to do this thing. It was just a committed way of worshiping. I just want to make it real simple, um, not get distracted by the whole idea of promising and swearing and all that. This is just simple public worship. That's all this is. You know, it's like New Year's Eve. We're going to start going to church or we're going to start giving to the church. We're going to support a missionary or we're going to start going to a weekly Bible study. It's just a commitment you've made to publicly worship and submit yourself to the leadership of the Lord. That's what he's talking about here in the text. So in verse 14, 14, I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's a weird verse, right? That sounds a little weird, like 
God likes it when we die or something. I don't know. First reading, that sounds weird, but it's really, um, think of precious as costly, okay? Our, our lives are very costly to God. Our lives are precious to Him, costly to Him. And we, again, see the rest of the story in the New Testament that's played out at the cost of His own life. Our lives are that valuable to Him. So precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This is where I get the idea for this point. It's public. This is public worship. It's being publicized. You're saying to everybody, God saved me. I'm here gathering publicly to sing to him, to offer myself to him, to obey him, to learn from him. To publicly say in the presence of God's people in the community, God has saved me. I belong to him. I'm his. There's a lot of different ways that people do that. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'll call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So here we have the practice of temple worship or tabernacle worship where they gather publicly. They declare who God is. They carry out commitments that they've made among the public, among the community, among God's people, publicizing the faithfulness of God. Not just keeping it a secret. This is not just private prayer time. And that's one of the things that we've wrestled with is we've read the Psalms. The Psalms are great for your private prayer time. They're great for that, but they're also a public worship book. And so there's this kind of swing throughout church history of the church is all about the corporate, right? The church is all about the gathering. And then there's this swing to, no, the church is just all about me and Jesus, the church is organic, it's just God's people, it's private. Well, it's really both. The scriptures are clear, it's both. It's public, it's private. It's a gathering of people. It's also a private individual relationship between you and God. And so we want to be careful to have a, a private relationship with God, but we also want to publicize that. We want to gather with other believers publicly. We want to proclaim it publicly. We want to, before the community, live out as one of God's people. We see that in the text. What are ways that we, what are like tokens that we publicize things with in our culture? Think of some ways we do that because obviously we don't do the tabernacle worship and the sacrifices and the vows the same way they do, but we do public worship. There's also just in our non-worship life, in our normal life, we publicize things. Um, I think about how we wear the shirts of our favorite sports teams, right? So a lot of you publicize who you belong to when it comes to sports. Um, for myself, uh, when I married my wife, I put a ring on, and this is how I publicize. Sorry, ladies, not available, right? You, you know, you publicly broadcast that to others. I have a picture of a wedding ring here. This is a, a woman with her wedding ring. I just realized the picture's backwards, isn't it? That's her right hand. I should have flipped it. It looked right when I looked at it. There were two of them. They were flipped both ways. Um, and so there are these ways we publicize it, right? We publicize our covenants. We publicize our promises um, in different ways. There's not a lot of ways that we do this. I think they had more public covenants in the ancient Near East than we do in our culture. Traditionally in Christianity, there's public ways that you publicize that you belong to the Lord, that he saved you. Baptism, right? Baptism is where you act out the saving. We've talked about the symbolism, the double symbolism of baptism. It's a washing ceremony. We're dirty. We need God to wash away our sins. We're sinners. It's also a death and resurrection. We're spiritually dead. The old us dies with Christ and rises again with him and his resurrection. And so there's a couple of symbols there. And 
baptism where you're publicizing the saving that God has done for you. We also have the, the public ceremony of communion where we publicize that we believe he's our life, he sustains us, he's our food and our drink. We eat and drink Jesus, we can't live without him, so that's the way we act out what we believe and publicize it. Um, the scriptures also talks about holiness and caring for the poor. You know, in James it says, this is true religion, to keep yourself unspotted from the world and also to care for the widow and the orphan. It's this great pairing of the two things in Christianity. We often run to one or the other, right? A lot of Christians say, don't care for the poor, just be holy. That's what it means to mark yourself as a Christian. And others say, just care for the poor. Who cares about holiness, right? Um, it's kind of like, depending on which camp of Christianity you live in, well, the Bible says both. The Bible says both. Care, care for the weak and also be pure. Those are public ways that we mark ourselves as belonging to God. Welcoming outsiders. Again and again, hospitality is a New Testament mark of belonging to God. Right? Because we were outside of his family and he grabbed us and brought us into his family. So we should be those kinds of people. We should welcome outsiders. Welcome people that are not like us. The word hospitality is literally stranger love or stranger affection. It's being kind to strangers. It's being kind to foreigners. That's what the word hospitality means at its root. It's most often lived out in giving someone a place to stay or giving them a meal. But at its heart, it's caring for those that are different than you, that are outside of you. So does the love of God, does the saving work of God compel you to publicly display that in caring for those that are outsiders? I encourage you, too, to apply this idea of um, publicity in your family life. So we should publicly live out that God saved us. Do you publicly honor your children? Do you publicly honor your father, your wife, your husband? Do, do you publicly say these things? Again, because we're, we're a different sort of culture. We're an informal culture. We're a culture that doesn't have covenants as much anymore. We should be these kinds of people that publicly declare our allegiances, that publicly respect people. We have to work on that. I don't, I don't think that comes naturally to us. I think the military understands that to some degree better than the rest of the culture here in the United States. But as just regular old American folks, we don't do that as much anymore. And we need to relearn ways to do that. I would encourage you, if you're a dad, figure out ways to publicly bless your children and your wife. If, if you're a wife, figure out ways to publicly bless your husband and your children. If, even if you don't have children, figure out a way to publicly honor those that you love, your parents, your boss, those that you work with, those that work for you. Those are important things that we need to, to do to live out this, this principle that we see in the Scripture of, of publicly declaring uh, the loves that we have, the, sal- the salvation that we've enjoyed. As we conclude, I just want to remind us of this character that we see in God, that that should affect the way that we live. We've talked about how that applies to fathers, but but that applies to everything, right? So if you're not a father, if you don't have a father, if you've had a terrible father, it, it really doesn't matter. God is your father through Jesus Christ. He loves you. He offers adoption through Jesus Christ. All we have to do is turn from our sin, say, I don't want sin to be my father anymore, and accept with open hands the free gift of adoption that God offers to us. It's that simple. I don't want sin to be my father anymore. God, I want you to be my father. Teach me what it means that you love me. That's hard for me to believe. Help me to understand that. And then help me to live that out. That you're the God that saves. So that I can be that kind of person in other people's lives. That I can 
bring love, that I can be a, a saver, that I can be someone that shows love and justice to those around me. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for the affection and the love that we see in this psalm, and we pray that we would be able to live that out. God, I pray especially for those that are hurting today, that, that are numb or that are furious um, or that are just feeling uh, distant. God, we, we pray that you would break in. Help us to see that you're good and that you love us and that you prove that through Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.